It's me, David Webb, and here's a highlight from today's show on Sirius XM Patriot. As we talked about in the first interview on Black History, an inclusive account of American history, which you can find at bh365.org, we're going to engage in an education track, 10 units in a book, 1,248 pages, but not limited to the pages between the covers, QR codes, links, information, how you can go further. This is an eye-opening course, a look of an inclusive account of American history written by Dr. Walter Milton Jr. and Joel Freeman, also doctor as in PhD, and we will continue for the next 22 weeks. Every other week, there's more than just the units. There's so much more to this discussion. To do this correctly, you've got to start at the beginning. So we're all students now. We'll have participants in the book, figures from various aspects, political, cultural, educational, backgrounds, and some things you won't expect. We'll talk about the elephant experience, what that experience is, what it means, what its relevance, how it's even named. First, we'll start with Dr. Joel Freeman, one of the authors of Black History, an inclusive account of American history, who joins me today. And uh, Joel, my friend, uh, I'm learning every time I dig into this, sometimes taking me away from my work for other things. (laughs) But, uh, you know, you're you're you know, you're here today because you are also the collector, the archivist. You have an immense history collection. And, you know, the history unit one ancient Africa to the listener who says, well, what about just history in America? Why is it important for Unit 1 to be ancient Africa? Well, David, first of all, it is such a joy to be with you again. I always enjoy this, and I enjoy every conversation with you. Um, it, it is just uh, what we, Walter and I, when we began to look at this whole project, um, we did a SWOT analysis uh, looking with a special emphasis on the weaknesses and and uh, threats uh but we also looked at other uh other supplemental type material and one thing we we found is that in most and i i hesitate to say all but it pretty close to all books that we read and researched they all started with slavery and the slave trade and we thought why, why is this uh why why do people start in this particular area instead of in ancient Africa? So we felt it was important to discuss Africa, how it, how it got its name, uh, to take a look at the uh, mores, the folkways, uh, hunting, gathering, fishing, industry, agriculture, and just to kind of give a common sense view of what ancient Africa looked like. And then secondly, to reveal and show to some and um, remind others is that um, there were some ancient, prior to colonialism and imperialism, uh, there were these ancient African kingdoms that transcend the current geopolitical lines. 
and to share that, to show the genius, the creativity, uh, even places like Great Zimbabwe, who um, uh, for some unknown reason around 1450 A.D., it was no longer inhabited. But to this day, you can go to Great Zimbabwe and um, near Mozambique, uh, you know, just in that region, and find that they built a uh, they built a city with no mortar, uh, stone upon stone upon stone. And I, I uh, anyone in our listening audience, you can build a stone fence, and because of the way the earth moves, uh, 20, 30, 40 years later, that stone fence is down. If you just put stones upon stones, and to have a whole city built with stones without mortar is just an astonishing uh, architectural feat. So those are the kind of things that we wanted to bring. Now we're ready for the good, the bad, and the ugly of the last four centuries here in America. Uh, But first, to lay that as a foundation, no pejorative images, and just to tell the story about ancient Africa, it, it just was such a joy to do. Well, there's also, as I listen to you talk about this, uh, you know, in essence, a culture that was stolen in some ways. Great achievements, science, technology in its time, in its day. And like many other cultures, then upended by what happened after. Again, we'll get into that later on. So let's go through some of the, the things that people don't often think about when it comes to ancient Africa's uh, existence. Yes. Um, well, first of all, you know, you have um, the kingdoms. You know, when we look at the, from the biblical perspective, uh, we have uh, Ham Sham and Japheth, uh, the Table of Nations in Genesis 10. Uh, we touch on that just a little bit in the textbook. And uh, Ham was uh, his his sons. Uh, Put uh, is now Libya, region of Libya, Cush. And uh, we have Mizriam, which literally means two Egypts, Upper and Lower Egypt, and uh, Canaan or Canaan. Uh, but you look at uh, how Africa was populated. And we have um, the various ancient African kingdoms. Uh, we have Kush, which is the Sudanese and southern Egyptian Nile Valley region. Uh, the Ghanaian kingdom, which is uh, southeastern Mauritania and western Mali. And then the Malian kingdom, which is Mali, Niger, Senegal, Mauritania, uh, Guinea, and Gambia. And the Songhai kingdom, which was northern Mauritania and Mali. And then the, the Kanem Bornu, which is Chad, Nigeria. And then you have the, the kingdom of Benin, uh, which is southern Nigeria. And so you have these, these transcendent kingdoms. And they had their own cultures and their own uh, ways uh, and mores and folkways. And um, the, the, the meta narrative of every single one of those kingdoms, you know, helped to uh, describe how they would function, how the civilization was built. And so uh, I don't know if that's getting to the core of your question, but um, those are the some of the kingdoms that were uh, uh, all across the continent of Africa. Well, it does in a way, because in order to have kingdoms, in order to have success by any means, expansion, conquest or otherwise, always a part of history of, of 
well, any part of the world at some time, you have to have an organization, you have to have structure, you have to have achievements. And, you know, the QR codes, which is a part of this entire book, uh, various QR codes, the integrated technology that leads people to more beyond the what's between the covers, uh, will help with that. Uh, where were some of the... And, you know, it's interesting, Joel, sometimes you think of agriculture and technology as separate. Uh, and people hear technology and you don't think, wow, you know, ancient times and technology, but we really should. And we shouldn't with respect to Africa and in your collection and your days of collecting uh, not only the pieces, the, the artifacts, but the information. Let's talk about the technology of the time. Yes. Um, in fact, even um, when the enslaved or kidnapped people came over from Africa here to uh, South America, the Caribbean, and in the United States, uh, we can we can see that uh, a lot of the plantation owners depended upon uh, the the kidnapped people to come up with uh, technologies and, and, and ideas. And so, a lot of the things that emerged. Uh, the the Africans were not given credit for, but it gives us a glimpse, a tiny glimpse into the tremendous uh, industrious creative nature of, of of Africans coming to America. And uh, so, what happened is that, uh, I mean, when when you start to think about hunting and gathering and uh, and all these different types of things, what would happen is that they would actually uh, have have these. Um, uh, these they called them weirs, um, a game drive. Or the, in some cases, a hopo is a funnel-shaped fence that enclosed a considerable tract of land, and then they would drive the game in. It was an organized way, and so animals of all descriptions are urged on until they become jammed together in the neck of this hopo, and it's made of wood, trees, all kinds of stuff jammed together. And um, and then they would either be destroyed there or they would be killed. And they never wanted to kill more than they could handle because of the preservation aspects. So they were very selective about it. My guest, Dr. Joel Freeman, one of the authors of Black History, an inclusive account of American history, the slave owners in the United States and in other parts of the world, uh, they relied on those innovations. That's something that I didn't think of before this book. Yes, it's. Um, I think it, it just uh, tips the hand. It gives us a glimpse, a lens to look through to see the genius and creativity uh, in exercise in ancient Africa. Because uh, you think about life, uh, you know, civilizations developing, and you have the the different uh, ways of the uh, the economic aspects where some are working in one aspect, let's say agriculture and. Others are working uh, as hunters, and others are fishing, depending on the the region of the, the what the land will give up to them and where they live, and so um, and then there's trading going back and forth and the the security uh, to be able to know uh, that they are uh, they're being protected and all these different things that help to make up a civilization the the pathways the roadways uh, the trails. Uh, the uh, the different uh, trading ports. So it just um, is quite remarkable when one begins to get a glimpse back into it. And so when uh, uh, in my collection, I have uh, probably dated to around the mid, eight, mid to late 1800s is a, 
a 16-inch high warrior head uh, from the Igbo from Nigeria. And so clearly uh, there were some uh, smelting of iron and ore and uh, creating metalized metal um, tips for spears and for other implements, swords and things like that. And uh, and then to have the uh, one thing I think that probably is one instrument that could symbolize the African kitchen, without a doubt, would be the mortar and pestle. You know, it's one of the most common images of daily African life of a, a, a woman pounding food in a wooden mortar. And uh, it was the mortar, actually, the mortar and pestle was considered sacred in many African countries. And the thumping sound of the mortar and the pestle was a sign that cooking had begun. <laughs> and so uh, in the village, you know, people would hear that and they'd go, okay, uh, I'm probably about an hour or two away from dinner. And, uh, and so just to kind of think about that. So, uh, you know, the threshing, the winnowing of the grain, um, and then you have the, the grinding of the grain into flour, uh, all the different aspects involved in agriculture. And, of course, different regions of Af- Africa had different types of, um, of agriculture that the land gave up. Uh, and so and then we have languages. We have the Rosetta Stone in, um, in, in Egypt, um, dated right around 196 B.C., that had hieroglyphics, which was an ancient uh, language that the, the priestly caste used and no one else would know and uh, was written on the sides of obelisks and temples. And the code was cracked when the Rosetta Stone was found in 1799 by Napoleon soldiers. And um, then some 23 years later, the code was cracked by a Frenchman by the name of Jean Champollion, which uh, you know literally uh, unlocked the secrets of ancient Egypt. And yet that's something that that, a lot uh, of people wouldn't connect to Africa. They wouldn't connect that history. You hear Rosetta Stone today, you think of a technology, you think of an app. Yes. Yeah, Rosetta Stone, um, you know, I have developed a, uh, I'm probably the only one in the world that has created a full-size 3D replica of the famous Rosetta Stone. They're in museums all around the world and private collections and libraries. In fact, one of my replicas was used in the movie Night at the Museum Part 3 on the movie set in Vancouver. But it's, um, to me, the Rosetta Stone is the key to uh, ancient Africa, understanding ancient Africa secrets, ancient Egyptian and African secrets. Because Egypt is in Africa, and uh, I think when people begin to connect that to Africa, uh, it becomes, um, uh, it takes on a whole different tone and uh, perspective. Let's talk about dynasties and empires uh, for a minute. I know you mentioned that at the beginning of this conversation. Uh, you know, the, the common imagery today is not accurate uh, in movies and, you know, call it pop culture, I, I believe. So, you know, dynasties of, you know, some size and level of effect not only on a continent but maybe beyond yes in the textbook we uh, talk about the various uh, dynasties <clears throat> for instance uh, the malian dynasty was in uh, west africa um, and it um, there was a, a gentleman who was probably uh, the richest man to ever live <laughs> uh, he would put bill gates and all the other billionaires to shame in terms of of the amount uh, that he owned 
His name was Mansa Musa, and uh, he he was a um, a, a legendary individual. Um, in fact, there's a guy by the name of Jacob Davidson back in Time Magazine back in 2015. He he wrote a uh, uh, an article called the 10 richest people of all time. And in this article, he reported that uh, Mansa Musa, he says, there's really no way to put an accurate number on his wealth. In fact, uh, there, there's just some legendary tales of him dishing out so much gold that he caused the value of gold to plummet in Egyptian markets for several years. <laughs> it's just, uh, when you, when you think about, um, uh, the song, Hey, song, high, uh, culture, uh, it is um, you have the African Moors, and uh, you have the uh, the different kings that uh, reigned uh, during that time. Because the Moors in the first century, uh, they were uh, uh, some of the earliest uh, people in that region, and um, they they were very wealthy, uh, very um, uh, uh, industrious in the way that they ruled. And we know that the great Zimbabwe culture that I mentioned, uh, that was uh, uh, quite a kingdom that still today today people scratch their heads. And what I find interesting is that when European explorers came in and saw it, they somehow thought it must have been uh, white people that built it. You know, and that's where you have the pejorative view of, of ancient Africa is uh, how could black people develop something this this uh avant-garde this 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 uh you know this huge and and so um and and so well put together and so that's where you have uh the colonial empires coming in and trying to reinterpret trying to figure things out but uh, it is what it is and we can go back i mean africa is is the cradle of civilization um we can we can even see in terms of the um mitochondrial dna you know mother to daughter mother mother to daughter that uh, even uh, scientists let us know and biologists let us know that uh, there was an ancient eve and she probably had she had to have been a black woman in order for uh, all the other melanin tones to emerge and so because um, uh, uh, lighter comes from darker not darker from lighter so we even when we look at all the different aspects of it, we begin to really realize that Africa is the cradle, not a cradle, but the cradle of civilization. In the book, the textbook, to be more accurate, in each unit, there is the elephant experience. Now, this will be part of the ongoing series. And again, the book, Black History, an inclusive account of American history, where we start at the beginning today. But the elephant experience in unit one joel explain that explain the experience what it means and let's just say tease the folks to go and read and learn more okay um the elephant experience how much time do we have before the next break well, let's go for about five minutes okay <laughs> the elephant experience is a proprietary process that walter and i developed that uh, would help students and anyone who engages with this, uh, this, uh, this uh, curriculum, this textbook, this history book, to be able to take a look at some of the most difficult topics. Uh, imagine going to a, um, a Thai restaurant or a Chinese or a Mexican restaurant, you're opening up the menu, and there you see a little red pepper next to a dish. Now, 
you intuitively know that's going to be hot and spicy. And so what happens is that um, uh, some people are repelled by the little red pepper and some are attracted to it. Well, our little red pepper throughout the textbook is an elephant, kind of a funky-looking, hippy-dippy-looking elephant, mysterious-looking elephant. And um, every time someone sees that elephant, the parents, teachers, students, anybody, they know they're about to enter into something that has vexed our country for centuries. And, uh, and so we, we address topics which walk straight into these topics. The Uncle Tom, um, three-fifths of a human being. Um, we talk about are, are we in a post-racial society after having a black president for two terms? Uh, reparations. Should we tear the statues down? The N-word. Can a white person ever fully understand the black experience in America? Scientific racism. And on and on it goes. There's over 50 of them in the textbook. And so what happens is that uh, we, the first class is, or even if several people or one person or a whole uh, a group engages with this project, the first experience is not even about black history. It's developing the how. Uh, how are we going to do this? So uh, we encourage people and we train them how to create their own rules of engagement. So imagine students creating a, a, a rules of engagement made up of we will, we will not statements. And then the second class, uh, we edge closer. In my collection, I have a from the mid-1800s a uh, talking stick from the Chukwe tribe of Angola. And it, with this talking stick, uh, we t we explain the history around the talking stick that the, the chief or the king would hand this to someone in a tribal council and that person, whoever's holding the stick would have the authority to speak and everyone else has the authority to listen. And so the students will learn about good communication, listening, feedback, and uh, those types of things. And then they're going to create their own talking stick and add artifacts to that talking stick, like a button uh, to remind them to remain open with each other, a feather to have wings to get to the point, whatever it might be. Now they're ready to deal with the difficult, tough, uh, hot and spicy topics. And the four things that we wanted to um, uh, include here is that we want to invite everybody, number one, to become a critical thinker, number two, a compassionate listener, number three, a fact-based respectful communicator, and number four, an action-oriented solutionist. The first three we've been doing for decades and decades, but to become an action-oriented solutionist, I think is so important. So how else can we do this except deal with tough topics and to be able to walk through that, not in a divisive way, but in a healing way? There is so much more to this book that we will not be able to cover in this show, but we will open the door together, Joel, along with many others. Uh, that are involved in this project. Uh, it's, it's just an amazing body of work. Uh, Black History, an inclusive account of American history. The website, again, bh365.org. You can join me live on The David Webb Show, Monday to Friday, 9 to noon east, on Sirius XM Patriot 125.